This is Crucial Tech, a podcast about technology that affects all of us in a format that allows you to consume it in the time it takes to go to and from the grocery store. I'm your host, Lou Covey, and I probably know more about it than you do. And if I don't, I know someone who does. But first... Decades ago, I read a book by a man named Leon Uris, who's mostly well-known for a book called Exodus, which was made into a movie with uh, Paul Newman about the modern found, or the founding of modern Israel. Um, the book that I'm referring to is a book called Trinity, which is a historical novel dating back to the 18th century about the problems, probably even more than that, if I remember right, uh, about the problems uh, between Ireland and England. And it, 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 one of the, the, the key phrase in it is that in Ireland, there is no future. There is just the past repeating itself. Now, admittedly, that is a very dark statement, but I wanted to apply that to the state of cybersecurity in the world today. Uh, it, people just don't seem to be getting it. They are more aware of it, but they don't seem to understand what to do with it. And recently, uh, a gentleman by the name of Ian Thornton Trump, who I discovered this year and who, we, who I have maintained an active conversation with, uh, Ian is the uh, uh, Chief Information Security Officer for a company called Sijax, and he's based in the United Kingdom. And he seems to be my favorite kind of iconoclast. Uh, he doesn't necessarily go along with the party line on just about anything when it comes to cybersecurity. And yet he is very adept at understanding the problems. Uh, he, in fact, was the one who uh, developed the security uh, standards for the, his home country of, of Canada. Uh, so I've always enjoyed talking with him. And he posted something on LinkedIn uh, about a month back about his top five cybersecurity problems. And it, it intrigued me. And he suggested that maybe we should have a talk about it. And so that's what this podcast is. Uh, Ian takes a look at five major security breaches that have happened around the world and listed them in the top five. And that these are the types of breaches that continue to happen over and over again, because we just don't seem to be able to learn our lessons. And I think it is probably a good thing that we take some time and actually talk about these things. So let's go to Ian and, and have him explain why he's looking at this. And then he, we're going to go down his list of uh, favorite security breaches so that maybe we can learn something from it. This is maybe a little bit longer than you're used to, but it's not that much longer. And I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, Ian is highly entertaining and highly informative. So let's go to Ian. I, I think it's interesting because it, it, it's like it's like when I see a lot of the new articles that are being pushed out um, and, you know, talk about, especially in the case of, you know, Colonial Pipeline being a sort of a benchmark. It's like no one's paying attention, Lou. It's like really disappointing. 
because all of this stuff has happened before and it ah. will happen again. And, and so, you know, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, the, my first one on my list, which is actually really the one that we'll start with the, the at the bottom and end with the, the big she bang. Right. Okay. But that, so number five right now is of course the giant sewer spill uh, that happened in Australia in 2001. Okay. Now, the thing about a giant sewage spill because of poor identity and access management and not removing the privileges for accounts uh, after the person has left the organization, especially when they've left under less than amicable terms, is the giant sign saying, we, ha we have not progressed at all. This happened in 2001. It should have been a cautionary tale about IoT security. It should have been a cautionary tale about identity and access management and privileged uh, users. But again, it gets lost in the continuous fear and uncertainty and doubt and, oh my God, it's insert threat actor here. And, and I guess, you know, this one to me is like a reminder that very bad things can happen when you are failing to prevent the basic cybersecurity hygienes when it comes to, you know, um, the, the sanitation and water systems. Because don't you remember about two years ago, roughly, there was a team viewer on a computer that was controlling the chlorination of the water supply and the headlines, you know, blasted out, you know, that the, the threat actor could have poisoned the water supply, which is a huge over-exaggeration. They could have elevated the chlorin chlorination levels, but it wouldn't have led to mass yeah. death in the streets, right? Well, you that's know, basically because the, the, the news media in general doesn't understand the problem. And they don't do any research or historical background to say, you know, and, and I guess it detracts from the clickbait headlines that they're all trying to do, right? Because it's like, hey, this stuff has happened before and it will happen again. Now, number four on my list is a bit special because this is the counter argument to the argument of, well, you know, we have a business, Lou, and we haven't invested in cybersecurity. Um, we hold a ton of confidential information. Um, well, hang, hang on a second. Yeah. Let, let, let's specify. Yeah, we, we, we talk, we, we we're specific, specific about the sewage treatment plant. Yeah. Which, which, which uh, story are we talking about here? Okay, so we're going on to number four on, on, on my list. Um, which is the Mossack Foca um, okay. law firm? Okay, and 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 this this was the firm uh, in uh, Panama, correct? That, that was doing a lot of money laundering that uh, became a, a a big news story a few years ago. Yeah, and and this is about how they were actually hacked. That's right, and and this is about the fact that for a long period of time, the narrative of businesses in terms of cyber, where it wasn't an existential threat, right? It, right. It, it became sort of an existential threat when you had a combination of poor security and unprotected backups. But this one went way, way, way into the deep end of client confidentiality. Now, the brand no longer exists. One of the founding partners, I believe one is dead and the other is facing 
a huge um, uh, sentence in jail. This is an example of how cybersecurity is an existential threat to a business when the business is doing illegal things and needs to try and keep those illegal activities out of the prying eyes of journalists, of activists, and of law enforcement. And, and for me, this one was, it was profound in that once the information got out there, the follow along effects on some of the wealthiest people in the world, uh, shortly after this um, data was uh, leaked and published, there was uh, massive arrests in Saudi Arabia because it was quite possible, we've never really connected the dots on this, but it was quite possible some very interesting things were revealed about potential disloyalty amongst the House of Saud. And, you know, granted, in some cases, the various members that were arrested ended up paying huge sums of money to the Crown Prince in order to be vindicated, <laughs> I guess, or forgiven, <laughs> as the case may be. Yeah. But this is this to me is one of the things that every law firm should have taken this as a complete shot across the bow and shored up their defenses uh, when this attack occurred. And yet to this very day, Lou, we 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 get law firm after law firm, including some of the largest law firms in the world who are not taking the necessary precautions to shore up their their uh, their cyber defenses or are not protecting the sensitive data, the very highly sensitive personal data that they have a fiduciary responsibility to protect and they're not protecting it adequately. Okay, so are you saying that, because the, the story that when this came out was about the criminality that it was uh, encouraging, uh, yeah. but there really wasn't much coverage at all on how the hack was done. Yeah. Do, so, do you, do you have that information? Yeah, the technical um, review indicated that they had a content management system. I believe it was Drupal, and it was unpatched, and that allowed the malicious actor. We still don't know to who, um, who's claimed responsibility to download all of the information that this law firm had and distribute it to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, who then went on to go through, which I think was somewhere like over a terabyte, a terabyte and a half of data, and start trying to figure out how these shell corporations work, how the money moved for the very rich, and how they, how they bridged the gap between tax optimization, tax avoidance, right? And how that nebulous relationship uh, became, and it became political as well, because I believe um, the uh, prime minister of Pakistan at the time had to resign uh, and then ended up facing criminal prosecution as a result of the criminality that was, uh, that was on display for everyone to see to the point that it kind of sucked in former prime minister of the United Kingdom, as well as um, the royal family. And so this had profound repercussions as a cybersecurity, a vulnerability management failure. Okay. So, so uh, yeah, I can understand on that side of it, but don't we want to hope that uh, these uh, uh, 
shady law firms uh, don't don't get it so we can actually find this stuff out? Yeah, so I'm not defending the law firm um, yeah. for its activities on behalf of these individuals. What I'm trying to underscore and sort of put a line under it and say, this is the worst possible scenario that a cyber attack or a, or a malicious attack on your organization can, can do. It can end your business, um, even if your business was, you know, shady or not. But, <laughs> but the lesson learned here is that um, when it comes to confidentiality, and this is, you know, something that every hospital and clinic, especially in the United States, should be uh, brought to task on, that sensitive data um, is, is, I guess, the risk um, mm -hmm. that, you know, is posed to the organization. In this case, it was existential, not just because of the criminality, but also because of all the things that, uh, that it revealed um, about the, you know, the, the activities of very influential people. Okay. So let's go to number three, the uh, Volkswagen cheat code. Yeah. So this one was really, really interesting to me because this was the first time that we've seen a regulatory infraction blossom up into an existential threat for violation of the Clean Air Act. Literally, this was the first time where the regulatory authority could have decided that Volkswagen shall be put to corporate death. Now, keep, it, keep this in mind. It was a conspiracy of the highest levels in the organization. And there's actually an executive in prison facing a, a, a very long sentence for um, his participation in this conspiracy to defeat the, uh, to defeat the emissions testing capabilities. Um, this was a massive reveal, I think, um, due to security researchers that spent over a year analyzing the data to try and find how this actually was happening. Um, but I think more importantly, this now shows that we created in the 1960s and the 1970s, uh, and, and, and later on, we reinforced the environmental laws uh, to the point where they can hold organizations accountable to uh, an existential level. And, and so this is I think the direction that we're headed in terms of regulatory authority when it comes to cybersecurity. It's also a really great IoT story as well because our, our cars are getting more and more complex. They're turning into mini data centers on wheels and malicious code either inserted or in this case, as part of the supply chain um, of code that runs the automobile is, is a cautionary tale. Um, it is a, a call from a future state where the manifests of malicious code running in IoT devices and autonomous vehicles kind of sends a chill uh, through me. Um, and, and so this is a look into or a cautionary note about the future as we rush to create the, you know, the driverless vehicles. Right. So... How do, how do we stop it? <laughs> we we need to embrace the current level of best practices that we're that we're trying to um, desperately ask companies to follow in order to secure the software supply chain, 
best practices when it comes to software development lifecycle, appropriate threat models, and above all else, the forensic capabilities and logging to determine what happened. Because this is where it gets really interesting. It took us a year to figure out that this code was defeating an emissions test. When life is at stake um, and the, the autonomous vehicle has to make decisions in split seconds, we're not going to have the luxury of spending a year to try and figure out what happened. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, we will need to develop uh, national transport safety board capabilities as they look into aircraft crashes the same way we need to do this now for autonomous vehicles. And all of the telemetry data needs to be stored in an un, uh, in, a, in a way that it can't be tampered with in a way that there like are, a black box in an airplane. Exactly. But going even further, because we now have these things in network communications or near constant network communications with the devices around them, with the GPS network, et cetera, et cetera. So we now have a massive forensics and accident investigation uh, challenge on our hands, which I think all points back to this original, let's find this malicious code that's defeating the emissions test. So this is where I look at this and go, okay, let's fast forward into the future. And somebody ha has been injured, or you know, uh, or or um, you know, God forbid, has 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 um, expired as a result of injury sustained in a collision with an autonomous vehicle. Um, the the grieving family is going to want answers, and the police and the insurance companies. And the manufacturer themselves will want to get answers as soon as possible. So this now, when we talk about a shortage of qualified um, people, it becomes more acute when you talk about digital forensics and incident responders in the OTIT space. Currently, Lou, there's about a handful of them out there that work in that. There's a couple of firms that work in that, Dragos being, being one of the well-known ones. But if the future is gonna be robotics and the future is gonna be autonomous vehicles, man, we're gonna need a lot of people with a lot of advanced skill sets to figure out when things go sideways. Yeah, these two kind of work together, it seems, that th there needs to be a lot of concern put into independent analysis of this technology. Uh, especially because you know, I, I've my I've been in tech for a long time, and one of my real problems with most technology is technology companies actually do beta testing on their customers. Yeah. Okay. And 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 they want them to pay for the privilege of doing it. <laughs> and, and when you're talking about autonomous vehicles and and emissions uh, testing. It cannot be that way. It has to be bulletproof. And, yep. and, and I think we're just starting to scratch the surface when it comes to autonomous vehicles about how inherently unsafe they are. I mean, I don't know if, if you, you remember this, but we had this story here in the, in, uh, on the, in the Bay Area about an executive in his um, uh, Tesla driving down the freeway at 65 miles an hour and dead asleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the car just, you know, he didn't have, have a destination set. He just pointed the car south, put it on automatic, 
and went to sleep. And yeah. you know, that scared the hell out of me. <laughs> I, I just saying, no, no, we're, we're not ready for this. Uh, I mean, I even remember the story about GM when they were testing their autonomous system in New York City. And they had the, they had the car in the middle lane of five lanes of a one-way street. Mm-hmm. And it, traffic was, it was bumper to bumper and a dead stop. And coming toward the car was a bicycle messenger, mm-hmm. essentially in the same lane. And the car saw the bicycle messenger coming. And to avoid hitting the bicycle messenger, it it went from a dead stop to a swerve to the right to hit the car next and hit the car next to it to make enough room for the bicycle messenger. And that's when GM said, we're not ready to put this out, which to me was the most responsible thing I'd heard about autonomous cars. So, and I, I made a mistake. I, I skipped over number three, went to number four. The third one was Shamoon. And I have to admit, because I haven't been in, in this business long enough, I, even I don't remember Shamoon. <laughs> so what was well, it all about? You might, you might know it by, I think, the legendary and one of the most destructive cyber attacks at its time uh, back in 2012 as the Saudi Amoco hack. And, and this ah, is... Ah, okay. The, this, the Shamun refers to the actual uh, name of the, of the virus that um, ended up being a wiper virus, right? That right. destroyed the master boot records of over 10,000 endpoints. And, and this is where, I guess, Lou, this is the shot across the bow at anyone talking about colonial pipeline or attacks on national critical infrastructure um, that they have not done their history. They have not done their research. This threat, the wiper threat, as seen in attacks in the Ukraine on their national critical infrastructure, has been around and been successfully executed at the largest oil company in the world. So mm-hmm. when I see these things come across on LinkedIn talking about you know, the lessons learned, no one was paying attention because these lessons learned have gone way, way back in time. It's like, and just as a side note, it's like you know the current rhetoric about how Russia's gonna respond if the United States uh, cyber attacks. The United States has already cyber attacked Russia yeah. on numerous occasions during the Trump administration. In fact, they publicly said that. So these people that get on there that take a story and think it's in isolation or think that this is somehow a unique Um, an interesting thing are completely not doing their homework. And it bothers me from a cyber threat intelligence perspective, because if you're not paying attention to what has happened in the past, you're destined to make the same mistakes in the future. Right? Yeah, Carl Santana. Exactly. Um, Santayana. Not Carlos Santana. uh, (laughs) Santayana. Santayana. Carlos Um, Santana was good at other things. Yeah. So, so in terms of like understanding your business resiliency, in terms of segmentation, in terms of preventing the contagion from spreading um, unrestricted through your network, um, that even attacked the very same subsystem that got attacked in the Saudi Amoco hack, which was the billing system. That was the thing that went down. And, you know, to not be prepared for that as a national critical infrastructure uh, pipeline and to somehow 
have that not part of your threat model against your organization. I just found, you know, that's that to me was symptomatic of the lack of a security focused culture. And then when it came out with Colonial Pipeline, who was very transparent, I think that was the one thing that I did appreciate about Colonial Pipeline's response was they were transparent. They found a VPN system that wasn't protected by multi-factor authentication and the credentials were previously compromised in a data breach. Fair point. So it tells me they had a minimal approach to asset management. They they didn't they didn't identify the system as as a risk. They lost control of their external attack surface, and they didn't pay attention to a hack that happened, you know, more than eight years ago to the very same vertical industry that they were in. <laughs> So it's like the fail whale on this one is absolutely huge. And I can tell you this now, Saudi Omoko um, has invested millions of dollars on improving cybersecurity because they know that they're up against nation state actors. Okay. And yeah. so to have Colonial Pipeline not think that, you know, nation state actors and sophisticated cyber criminals were part of their threat model, again, it's like asleep at the wheel. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to number one. And this is the one that really interested me. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah. I, I, I'm, you know, I, I've, I've heard of crypto jacking and yeah. what the problem is. I've actually uh, had crypto jacking software on my computer once, mm -hmm. which uh, was wondering what the hell was going on with this. But luckily, I was. I'm not. I'm not a, a technologist. You know, I, I, I cover technology because it fascinates me. But I was surprised that I was able to find this particular piece of uh, malware on my computer that was using it to mine for crypto. And it wasn't Monero, it was, it was Bitcoin. Yeah, back in the day. <laughs> but, but this particular article you're talking about is how they're, they're crypto jacking devices. Now, I understand about the computer, but are you saying that even my phone can be crypto jacked? Yeah, so this is this is a fascinating one for me, and it's it's got two huge things that'll kind of sum up at the end of it. But I was personally involved in this one, and the the attack was essentially conducted by a third party that had been leveraged in order to create these uh, malicious attacks on all sorts of different websites. And we'll get into what the definition of malicious is in a second. But the company was named CoinHive that yeah. did this. Now, CoinHive was really interesting because it was German. It was set in Germany, and it was very protected by privacy laws, even though it was responsible for essentially burning your electricity to generate um, cryptocurrency that was then you know, not yours, even right. though it used your infrastructure, your electricity in order to do this. Now, I think personally, when you put a tool out on the market, it's really interesting because it was quickly embraced by the malicious actors looking to create Bitcoin back in the day that when Bitcoin was, you know, a couple of hundred US dollars at the most, right? And can you imagine what it would be worth now, or maybe not now, but what it would have been worth, you know, at the high point of, of, of Bitcoin. But the point here is that this um, piece of software 
was able to be installed as a result of poor cyber hygiene on internet facing um, computer systems, i.e. web servers. Okay. Okay. Now we know uh, that IoT devices, you know, routers, cameras, whatever, are essentially have a mini web server in them. So the attack essentially became um, twofold in that it was a, you were able to find a vulnerability on any of these IoT devices and insert your, your CoinHive code in order to, for that device to essentially start producing as part of your Bitcoin mining operation, your illegal and illicit Bitcoining operation. So this became weaponized and some there were giant botnets that were mining crypto. Interesting side story to this is that's exactly what many of the botnets after CoinHive actually ceased doing business. I think they ceased doing business as a result of heavy um, Department of Justice investigation of individuals and their corporate activities. But I'm not 100% sure that that's the case. It's speculation on my part. But this is where the story really takes a turn. And I said that I was personally involved in this. So one day I'm going to the um, information uh, commissioner's office or the ICO's um, website. And all of a sudden, my antivirus pings in my browser because I'm one of those paranoid individuals. And it says, you know, this software is trying to run on your machine to infect my machine um, to, to, um, to do crypto mining. Well, I... And it actually, was that specific? It was, absolutely. And, and Where do I get this tool? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, so um, I, I, it was covered a lot in the press and TechCrunch. And right. the reason why it was covered is I didn't know at that point what I was dealing with. I thought maybe my computer had been become infected, but no, it was the actual website that would create a task on your machine to um, mine the crypto using your CPU cycles um, by hooking into the actual browser. Right? So the device itself wasn't infected, but the web server that you were connected to was infected. And Correct. that in turn started Tried to run the crypto uh, generating program on my machine. Yeah. And so when you're walking around a, a, a store with one of these things uh, and you're using the, the, the store's uh, public Wi-Fi, yep. that's how they, they can get they can actually uh, get to you. Absolutely, because once that code's running on your computer, uh, you basically either have to stop it from running like my antivirus did, or it will run surreptitiously so long as that browser tab is open. And, you know, Lou, uh, I don't know about you, but people leave their browser tabs open in the hundreds of tabs, right? So quite literally, your own computer could be tasked to start making crypto for somebody else. Now, at the time, I didn't know what I was dealing with. So I sent a shout out to the community. As you know, Lou, I've got a lot of Twitter followers and I got in touch with a guy by the name of Scott Helm. Scott Helm is a a big deal in cybersecurity in terms of uh, web, uh, uh, web security. And we basically went public, a bunch of other security researchers weighed in, and some 2,500 or so very high profile websites had been, uh, had been infected uh, by the CoinHive uh, code, uh, generating possibly thousands of Bitcoin 
early back early in the in the days. So this to me said a whole bunch of really interesting things. It said basically anything can be infected by malicious code unless there's safeguards in place. So that's the first takeaway from this. Second, this kind of thing should be the natural threat model that everyone should be focusing on, right? Um, and, and, and this would solve a major cybersecurity problem of the botnets, which are all sort of basically exploited computers running Trojan software uh, for malicious actors. And, and to me, this was the moment where we realized that essentially, just like the cloud, literally the malicious actors can take over your machine and do what they want with it um, on behest of what their goals um, are. So, so to me, this one was the moment where um, you know, cyber hygiene, vulnerability management, the detection of malicious code, anomalous behavior, all of these things. Um, this is sort of the classic example of how we kind of fell down um, and didn't do any of it. And some of the biggest websites in the world got, um, got compromised. So to wrap all this up, what you're saying, let me see if I can, if I can do this justice. Just like there are only eight jokes in the history of mankind, <laughs> there are essentially five uh, or, or five ways of uh, hijacking your, your data and your computers uh, that we still are allowing the, the criminals to use. Criminals and nation state actors. Well, and it, it, let, 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 let's just go ahead and say, a nation state actor is a criminal if they're doing this. Okay. And I'll, I'll even put that on the United States. Okay. Fair enough. Um, not only are you right, but I think it's like there are, these are the five sort of threat models, if you will, of incidents that have happened in the past, dating all the way back to 2001 that I pay attention to and say, these attacks have concur uh, occurred. What are our defenses against this type of attack? And if and I would challenge any cybersecurity professional to make your own top five list and put those into how you're going to approach security in the modern era based on the attacks that have happened in the past. Because to be fair, Lou, we're still losing the battle to brute force attacks on user accounts that aren't protected with multi-factor authentication. We're yeah. still not patching our updates. In fact, we're so bad at patching our updates, Lou, that sometimes the Department of Justice and the FBI have to do it for us, <laughs> right? In the case of WatchGuard and Exchange and Microsoft Exchange. So yeah, I, I almost think that that's a problem with the general public is that they think that cybersecurity is someone else's problem. Yeah. And it, then it becomes their problem. Yeah. Right. And they don't know what to do. They don't know who to call. All right. I think we're going to let it go at that point. So that's Ian Thornton Trump, uh, the iconoclastic security expert from the UK. And I want to thank him for that. It's always an interesting discussion with him. Uh, and it's something we should all be taking to heart, not only from a corporate business level, but also on an individual level. We need to be concerned about these things and take care of it. So I want to thank you for joining us. As always, if you have any questions or concerns, you can contact me at 
cyberprotectionmagazine.com or you can go to the uh, anchor.fm slash crucialtech and leave a one minute audio recording. Uh, please uh, spread the word about what we're doing here. Uh, this is for everybody, not just people who are in government or cybersecurity, but for everyone that cybersecurity touches. That's what we're all about. So again, this has been Lou Covey with Crucial Tech. Thanks for listening. This has been a Footwasher Media production.